Bitcoin doesn't even necessarily have to win the war in order to be a significant outperformer within a portfolio. Whether you think about it as a deep out of the money call option on digital gold or a non-sovereign, you know, apolitical alternative to today's popular safe havens, or simply even as schmuck insurance, right? As some people referred to it, let's say gold appreciates $6 trillion in market value over the next 10 years. Bitcoin does, you know, $1 trillion. The annualized returns for Bitcoin look 4 to 5x higher because it is still such a small asset. You're listening to On Purpose with Tyrone Ross, brought to you by the Coindesk Podcast Network. This show is for advisors, by advisors, on all things crypto, and we appreciate you. And now, here's Tyrone. All right, welcome to this episode of the On Purpose Podcast. I have my good friend, K-Double, Kevin Kelly, co-founder of Delphi Digital, who, by the way, is the first non-advisor on the podcast, and that, my friends, is on purpose. How are you, sir? I'm doing great. I appreciate the intro. <laughs> Absolutely, man. No better way than to you know, introduce you and have you on. Honestly, when I thought about this and, and we were setting up guests, the first non-advisor I wanted to have on was you. I have tremendous respect for what you do, how you do it. I always tell people, Thank you, but especially to you guys over at Delphi, you've given me a voice and some credibility in the space. You and all of the other, Neil and everybody over there, thank you so much because this is impossible without you. Thanks for joining, man. Oh, absolutely, man. It's, it's more than well-deserved. And to be honest, it's a two-way street. You've definitely done a ton for us too. So we're all just trying to do our part. Absolutely. One pebble a day. So let's get right into it. This is a podcast for advisors, by advisors, right? I say, you know, everything they need, nothing they don't. And obviously, I think you are one of the premier global macro voices, not only in the crypto space, but just period. Um, tremendous how you articulate what's going on around the world and, and just in capital markets in general, what that means for Bitcoin. So that's what I want to get into. So we are talking on a day when Bitcoin is running. We all know it's because of Snapchat, so we won't get into that. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, but seriously, I think no one knows why it's running today. Everyone is guessing. But I think what you have done in a really good piece that you put out is given the backdrop of why we are seeing what we're seeing with Bitcoin and why I think, right, and a lot of us think we're going to see an explosive move upward. But talk a little bit about that, just the global macro setting in a low rate environment, why that's important for financial advisors to pay attention, specifically FAs. You know, trying to understand Bitcoin and what its long-term potential is without having an understanding of what you think the macro backdrop looks like and what you think it'll look like in the future. I think is honestly a bit futile when you're trying to figure out, you know, what the proper asset allocation, risk management strategy is around this. And so to set up what I think the long-term value prop for Bitcoin is, you kind of got to take it in stages and, and rewind the clock a bit. And I think obviously right now, top of mind, COVID-19, all the economic downturn and the aftermath of all of that. But I think as you've heard time and time again, people say that, you know, COVID has, has served as an accelerant. You know, I certainly think that that is a really, really good way to think about this because it's not necessarily the root cause of many of the headwinds that we're currently facing. Rewind the clock pre-COVID, you know, it's not like the global economy was going gangbusters, right? You had a kind of slowing global growth backdrop. You mentioned you already had record low rates. You had a widening inequality gap, which I definitely want to come back to because I know that's top of mind for you as well. But the big kicker too was also the excessive debt levels that you've heard a lot about, right? Both in the public and the private sector. And so that aspect, you know, debt in itself is not inherently bad, but too much debt. And when you get to unsustainable debt levels, 
that's when that can really hinder growth, cripple companies, and even cripple economies if you ever have you know, revenues, profitability, cash flows dry up, right? And so what COVID really served as was this massive exogenous shock to private sector profitability. And so what have we seen? We've seen monetary and fiscal policymakers basically trying to come in and fill the void in the private sector. All the things that people are reading about, obviously, central bank balance sheets exploding to the upside. You've seen, obviously, a lot of debate, especially recently, around what the next leg of fiscal stimulus and policy is going to look like. Long story short, them trying to fill this void, this growth void in the private sector, in order to do that, it requires a lot of money, right? We're talking trillions and trillions of dollars. And so in order to finance that or fund that, governments are going to and have been starting to issue an increasing amount of sovereign debt. And so the reason why I start off with that kind of backdrop is because in the short term, I don't think it's a time to be necessarily frugal when it comes to fiscal policy because the risk of further economic damage right now, if we don't extend financing and loans to small businesses and really kind of your your SME base, I think that economic damage risk is too great. You know, this is kind of a tough balance. Long term, there's only really a handful of ways in which we can really climb our way or get our way out from underneath these unsustainable debt burdens. We can grow our way out, but demographics and even high debt levels hindering growth serve as headwinds for that option. We have austerity where you could obviously have spending cuts, but as of right now, that's definitely not top of mind for anybody. And raising taxes has certainly been talked about a lot recently, especially with you know the presidential election coming up here in the US. But that again, without the growth backdrop, could actually hurt or cause economic growth to, to worsen even further. You could default, which is certainly not the route in which the US has ever tried to go. And the final kind of option, and this is what we put as the base case and really sets up what we think the long-term value prop for something like Bitcoin is, is this idea of kind of broad-based currency debasement, right? And a different way to think about that is essentially inflating away the real value of these debt burdens that are growing, because in our opinion, there really isn't another way out. And so what Bitcoin really serves as is one of the most levered plays on, you know, broad-based fiat currency debasement. And that's not to say that you know, the dollar is going to be removed as the global reserve currency tomorrow. These things certainly take time. It doesn't happen overnight. But the general trend towards fiat currency debasement because of you know, that backdrop I just laid out is really what our kind of long-term base case value proposition is for something like Bitcoin. Two things there. One, hashtag free jewelry, because everything you said is exactly why I wanted to have you on. Second thing is, I also wanted to have you on because it is still my goal to use exogenous in the sentence and have it make sense. So I appreciate you there. That's just practice. (laughs) No, I want to stay there though, because this is exactly it. This is what advisors need to hear. Because again, this is that top down approach that they're used to hearing and why I think you're so valuable. I want to pair what you're saying with the latest memo from Howard Marks, right? Which I think is where he makes the latest and greatest case for Bitcoin, even though he doesn't know it. You know, he really gets into the low rate environment, but he has a piece here and I, and I actually have it here. He says, one of the options that you have right now in a low rate environment is put more into special niches, right? And I say niche, it's a niche when you find it, it's a niche when you're looking for it, but put more into special niches and special investment managers. He goes into some detail there, but I mean, what does that sound like to you, right? It sounds like a great case for Bitcoin. So if you are talking to a room full of FAs right now, or millions of financial advisors as you are right now, and you're getting into the low rate environment, folks reaching for yield, trying to find something in the portfolio, especially for those that, again, are looking to retire soon, 
have some demonstrative yield in their portfolios. What would you say? What is the case that you could make in two or three minutes as to why this has a meaningful place in a portfolio as some of the money managers and planners out there start to construct portfolios for clients and taking a hard look at Bitcoin? The argument there, I think, is twofold. And you can come at it from two different directions. On the one hand, we just kind of laid out, you know, the, the very base case for the rising risk of, as I mentioned, broad-based currency debasement, right, or currency devaluation. And so there in that case, I think a lot of people, especially if you're in the crypto sphere, you're, you know, following things on crypto Twitter, what have you, there's definitely a lot of polarization around even talking about some of these topics and looking at, you know, gold bugs, for example, versus, you know, your, your Bitcoiners, or your Bitcoin enthusiasts. And to me, to be honest, again, from a global macro perspective, the backdrop and some of the attributes that Bitcoin has relative to something like a gold, there's actually a lot of overlap in the, the argument for both to appreciate or for both to outperform from this point going forward are very, very similar, right? There's a lot of differences that I'm sure we can get into later, or we can save that for another time of what these specific differences between a Bitcoin and a gold are. But if you just take the two as Bitcoin being a higher beta version of gold, that rising risk of, of currency debasement means that we're likely to see a greater demand for some of these non-sovereign safe haven assets. That has a tailwind for both Bitcoin and gold. Now, U.S. Treasuries, you know, historically have obviously been one of the most popular safe havens. But to be honest, you know, at least in my opinion, I think the current treasury market carries far more risk than, than many people assume. And that's not just from, you know, the low yield environment. If yields back up, certainly could be uh, damaging to people's portfolios. But on the flip side of that, I think when you look at conventional asset classes and you look at the expected returns over the next, you know, let's call it 10 years for traditional assets, because of elevated valuations and risk assets like equities and because of this low rate environment, right? That starting point really, really matters. And so expected returns for conventional asset classes are well below average. If you're looking at it from a kind of global macro asset allocation standpoint, pair that with money is going to have to find ways into, and again, money will chase returns and money will try and find certain growth areas. I think that is how we start to see a lot of capital flow from some of these more traditional asset classes and even some of these more popular safe havens into things like gold and Bitcoin. And the reason why I mentioned starting points matter is because there came out this piece a little while ago that basically said Bitcoin doesn't even necessarily have to win the war in order to be you know, a significant outperformer within a portfolio, right? And so whether you think about it as a deep out of the money call option on digital gold or a non-sovereign, you know, apolitical alternative to today's popular safe havens, or simply even as schmuck insurance, right? As some people referred to it. The point is, let's say gold captures, you know, six trillion in market value, or appreciates six trillion in market value over the next 10 years. Bitcoin does, you know, one trillion. The annualized returns for Bitcoin look four to five X higher because it is still such a small asset. It's crazy the amount of attention that Bitcoin gets when, you know, its market cap, at least up until this week before we saw this little run-up, was, you know, pretty much on par with the amount of, you know, cash sitting on Apple's balance sheet. I'd like to invite you all to join me at the Bitcoin for Financial Advisors Conference, November 9th and 10th. I've partnered with Coindesk to bring together a conference for advisors, by advisors on all things you would ever want to know about Bitcoin. It is free to register if you are a registered investment advisor and you can get up to nine CE credits. We will be discussing everything you need to know about Bitcoin, how to educate yourself and your clients, and more importantly, how to grow your practice. I'll see you there. 29,000 plus 
IRAs, $84 trillion of managed money, right? There's $4 trillion in self-directed money. And these are the conversations and things that advisors need to have. But the market cap, right? And I say market cap with air quotes, because we know that there are other valuation metrics truly in this space. But for advisors, right? The conversation around the market cap, it's just too small, right? It's just too small right now to feel comfortable taking that risk where you say, I'm going to allocate 5% of, you know, my total book of business to this, right? That career risk is a tough thing for them to swallow. But I think you make, you make a very good case again. And this is what this podcast is all about. Just start to understand how people like yourself and others are thinking about it in the context of which you are used to thinking about investments and assets and portfolio management and construction and things like that. And I think once we do that, we can at least start to lead them to the water in a very constructive way. I just want to say on the career risk point, I think it's a really good one to, to reiterate because, you know, even in our conversations, our target primary client base is, as you'd expect, you know, more kind of crypto centric funds. We're starting to see more global macro folks, but we have started to see an increase in demand at least on the education front, from RIAs, private wealth managers, financial advisors. And one thing I will say, you know, compared to you know, our conversations we're having today, compared to 12 or even 18 months ago, it definitely seems like initially, you know, 18 months ago, the career risk was, what if I invest in, you know, Bitcoin and, you know, everything goes to hell in a handbasket. This actually, you know, doesn't play out. There's a lot of technical risk to it. It's a very nascent asset. And I'm left sitting there having to explain myself and why I, I put my clients into a risky investment. Whereas now the conversations we're having, it's almost flipped on its head where the career risk, people are starting to think about it as, well, what happens if Bitcoin does all these things that people are thinking or believe that it can do, which obviously would mean that it would be one of the best performing assets, if not the best performing asset over the next, let's call it decade. What happens if that scenario plays out and I didn't put my clients into it? I'm going to have to be able to explain why I didn't have an allocation as much as why I did. Very good point. And that's where I actually want to hit on this, which is very important. And you don't have to do it, I will. But the plug Delphi Digital, I've been telling advisors, I told a group of Carson advisors this this past week that when you are talking about institutional research that you are comfortable reading as an advisor, one, and two, that you are comfortable putting in front of a client. Because I'm going to tell the truth. I tell people all the time, when there's really nothing for advisors, there's nothing for advisors. Some of this research, you won't get past compliance. You're not comfortable putting in, you know, front of clients and it really doesn't educate the advisor, but I can tell everybody listening to this. If you do nothing else, hard stop, go look at Delphi, look at their research. You will find it hard to make any type of distinction between what you're used to looking at from your, you know, traditional institutional shops and what they do. It is far and away the best in the space. And I couldn't recommend it anymore than I usually do on Twitter. Ending here, I want to hit on this point. To me right now, when you talk about income inequality and you talk about Bitcoin, I'm going out saying this, I'm finding it very hard right now for anybody to talk about social justice or talk about income inequality and not mention Bitcoin. I'm starting to tune it out because that means that you aren't really being very immersed in this conversation of what it truly means to talk about poverty, economic empowerment, the unbanked, all of these different things. And you know that this is something that is near and dear to my heart and is actually what brought me to Bitcoin growing up in an unbanked home and seeing the power of someone sending me Bitcoin. And I get it in three seconds, right? And seeing that on my phone was, it was a powerful thing for me. Give me your perspective, right? Especially going through that lens that you look through 
of how you feel this could play a role in those income inequality conversations and how we start literally to pull people up from the bottom, not by, you know, championing, oh, there'll only ever be 21 million, but more about the technology and how it's going to pervade traditional markets and force them to move to be more inclusive. So the way in which our current financial system is designed is certainly to the detriment of people who do not hold financial assets. And those oftentimes fall on those who can't really bear that burden, which is your lower income households and those who are really kind of, to be honest, struggling to make ends meet, right? You have to accumulate assets, or at least that's historically how wealth has really, really been created. And what COVID has done as well is it's really carved an even bigger wedge, I think, between the bifurcation between, you know, your haves versus your have nots. And you see this in every kind of layer, right? You can look at public equity markets, private markets, those who are closest to the money are large corporations with access to tap markets, for example. Those close to the money have greater access to financing and therefore doing okay. Right now, we're seeing with small businesses going under with people who are simply unemployed, looking for work, trying to get some type of fiscal stimulus or help from the government, it's, it's, and it hasn't come yet. All of these things as well are basically going to erode away long-term the value of the fiat money in which you know savings are held or people are trying to build up a certain amount of savings. And so on the one hand, Bitcoin in and of itself, it's almost serves as a life raft for a lot of people to help start to build that nesting or help pull them away from this current system. It is, you know, almost like the escape patch or the escape route. What I'll broaden this up to, because I know it's Bitcoin specific, but really quickly, what I think the technology, and this gets into more kind of crypto digital assets more broadly, I wholeheartedly believe that the fact that we are creating, and by we, I mean companies we're investing in, people we're covering, this industry is building open and permissionless networks and systems that have real tangible monetary upside that are permissionless to a global cohort of people, right? So you as, let's say, a lower income individual in this new kind of digital economy and this more decentralized economy, individuals can provide both through labor in the form of you know, time and effort, but also capital in the form of some type of supply side resource. You can basically get paid to be part of these communities to help build these open permissionless systems. And the fact that, again, it is permissionless and centralized means that that access is much more distributed. There aren't these gatekeepers that have the ability to accumulate and kind of hold on to or, sh or shelter off other people from that wealth, right? And so long-term, that is one of the biggest, I think, potential you know, tailwinds and catalysts for this entire space. It's, again, not going to happen overnight. But I just get really excited thinking about all the different ways in which people will be able to have access to alternative income streams and, and be able to start building up, you know, true wealth, try to narrow that wealth inequality gap because of a lot of what these systems are going to allow people to do. Absolutely. And I want to make it clear, we are going to talk a lot about Bitcoin, but I am a fan of what's happening in DeFi, especially for the unbanked and the underbanked and what that's going to mean moving forward. I'll be leaning on you guys again there over at Delphi to come on and chop it up with me about that. All right. I have one question to ask you that I ask every guest. Some I tell, some I don't. I didn't tell you. So here you go. Here's the surprise question to finish us up. Who the hell is Satoshi? Oh, jeez. <laughs> I mean, obviously can't give a name. I think it's a small quarter of people, though. I don't think it's necessarily one person. I'd love to be presently surprised. That's just too much power for one man or woman. <laughs> I, I agree. I agree. Well, listen, man, I appreciate you so much for doing this. Honestly, thank you for all you've done for me. Um, continue to support what I care about and, and being an advocate for my message 
And again, I, I can't thank you enough for spending the time and coming on. I think the world of you, not only as you know, someone in the space that is extremely intelligent and a colleague, but as a friend. So it's awesome to have you on. That's the cool thing about these podcasts. You get to interview your friends. So I truly appreciate you. Other thing is, please give everybody over there, Delphi, my love. We will link to Delphi Digital Work. You send us whatever people need to see from you guys. And again, really quickly before we go, just let everybody know where they can find you. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, really quick, really appreciate the opportunity. You know that everybody at Delphi, myself included, massive proponents of what you're doing. So keep fighting the good fight, my man. For us, where you can find us, uh, DelphiDigital.io is our site. Uh, You can log on to our members portal right there, see some of our free research, get a taste for what we're doing. You can reach directly out to me via the site, or I'm on Twitter, Kevin underscore Kelly underscore Roman numeral two. We're on LinkedIn. We're, we're kind of anywhere. So DM us, reach out to us. We're always looking to talk crypto with both the crypto centric as well as the non-crypto initiated. Absolutely. Thank you again. By the way, Mr. Kelly will be at the Bitcoin FA conference, November 9th and 10th for advisors by advisors. Again, shout out to my whole CoinDesk family. Listen, I tell you guys at the end of every episode, whatever you do, do it on purpose. We'll see you on the next one. I appreciate you.